This is the Equip Podcast from Cornerstone Church of Ames, a podcast designed to help you live a gospel-fueled and faithful life wherever Jesus has called you. Welcome again to the Equip Podcast from Cornerstone Church. My name is Mark Vance. Glad to join you. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. Hope it continues to be a help to you as we just try to cultivate faithfulness uh, to Christ where He's put us. So today what I want to do is take the time of the podcast to actually answer a question that I got asked repeatedly after a message that I just preached at Cornerstone. So this past Sunday at Cornerstone, that'd be Sunday, July the 11th, I preached a message from the book of Proverbs talking about God's design for human government. And in that message, we suggested that human government is God's tool of common grace that is used to care for his world and his creation, that it exists to punish what is evil, to promote what is good, and to protect those who are poor and vulnerable with the goal that wise choices of individuals would generally be rewarded with good outcomes. That's the purpose of government. Now, the question that I got um, is, I'm going to pose it this way, and then I'll explain some context to it. Um, The question is basically this. How is it, though, that when we live in a human society where people, um, in our case, we're in a representative democracy, so people see morality and they see what is goodness very differently, how is it that we can work from common ground for the common good if we don't share any sort of common moral foundation culturally? That's kind of the way the question was asked. It was asked in a couple different ways. And so now let me explain and frame that question up, and then I'll give four thoughts on it. So a bit of explanation here is I suggested in the message um, something that I do think is very important to note, that human government doesn't simply exist to punish evil. That, that would be a very narrow charge view of government. Many Christians take that sort of view, a very narrow and limited charge to government. I suggested government has more duties than simply the punishing of evil, that it is it has a positive duty in the Proverbs to promote that which is good, right, and virtuous. Proverbs 14, 34 holds true here. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. So governments don't simply have a responsibility to enact laws that tell you what not to do. They also have a responsibility to consider carefully how they promote the sort of social expressions of what we would call righteousness or integrity or good or moral flourishing. And the objection to that in our secular society is, well, isn't that just suggesting as a Christian that we're supposed to legislate morality on our culture? And I gave a couple answers to that on Sunday. I mean, one of them seems to be fairly obvious to me, which is that underneath that is the assumption that there could be legislation that is amoral or that doesn't convey morality. But every law we make is a statement that one thing is right and another thing is wrong. So in a way, one answer we give is that all legislation made is a form of morality. Whether you're legislating for the legality of handicapped parking to taxation codes, all of those are expressions of what is good and right versus wrong. That's a moral judgment. And underneath that, my suggestion is that morality moral rights and wrongs that are universally true are an expression of God's nature. Therefore, in a certain way, the morality that we find in laws is an expression of a moral God who exists. So, in this regard, 
I actually want to just read a few verses here out of Romans chapter 1. This is important because here's the other side of what I suggested on Sunday, is that you don't really just need a Bible to see those moral truths. They are generally revealed. They are readily apparent. They are, the way our framers of the American Constitution say, they are self-evident truths. Here's the way Paul writes about that in Romans. He says in Romans 1, verses 18 and following, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, since what can be known about God is evident to them. It's obvious because God has shown it to them. So now the question becomes, if God has shown something about who he is to them, how did he do that? Well, verse 20 goes on, his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world being understood through what he has made. Okay, so I'm going to hit pause here and just explain. That means is there are readily apparent things about the nature and character of God that you don't need a Bible to see. It is understood through the created world itself. This is what we would call general revelation. Theologians distinguish that from special revelation. That would be God's written, revealed word in the Bible or through a miraculous event. That's God specially intervening. But general revelation is distinguished in the sense that it's generally available to all common people everywhere. Sometimes you could call that common revelation, that any thinking person who looks out at the world around them is going to go, this thing did not just come out of nowhere. It's evident through what is made so that Paul can say, as a result, people are without excuse. They're under God's judgment. Why? Verse 21 of Romans 1, though they knew God, they didn't glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, they became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened, claiming to be came claiming to become, be wise. Why do I stumble over that? Claiming to be wise. They became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore, because they rejected those things that are self-evidently true about God, God delivered them over to the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator who's praised forever. For this reason, God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. Women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. Men in the same way left natural relations with women and were inflamed in their lust for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty for their error. Note there that even in this case of homosexual relationship, Paul doesn't make the argument People knew this was wrong because they read their Bible. He says these were naturally apparent as true. So since they don't acknowledge what is obviously true of the creator God, God's judgment is expressed in handing them over to do sinful acts. Paul continues on, verse 28, since they didn't think it was worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind 
So they do not do what is right. They're filled with unrighteousness, evil, greed, wickedness. They're full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, unloving, untrustworthy, unmerciful. They know that God's just sentence is there, that those who practice such things deserve to die. They are under judgment, but they not only do them, they applaud, they celebrate those who practice them. Okay, so there's several truths that are important out of Romans 1 when it comes to how a society functions. The baseline is this, things about that are morally true about who God is, what the way he's woven the world can be seen not simply by having a Bible, but by looking to nature. There are what are called self-evident moral truths. There are things, it should be self-evidently obvious that murder of another person is not allowable. We don't live in a world that is just morally relative, where there's no standards of right and of wrong. As a Christian, I believe that's because it's grounded in the nature and character of God and that people who know who God is would see those, obviously. So now we come to the big question that I got asked on Sunday is, if that's true, if that's how a society is supposed to function, what happens when the society rejects God, right? What happens when Romans chapter one starts to happen, when they deny their creator and instead they begin to pursue things which are self-evidently wrong and they not only pursue them, what did Romans one say at the end? They celebrate those things. The statement came to me kind of like this, Mark, America has become so perverse and immoral that we aren't going to have people who even acknowledge things that are morally right and wrong. So we won't have common ground to work from. How is a society supposed to work that way? That's a good question. I mean, historically in America, our whole kind of constitutionally driven representative democracy was built on a shared moral framework. Now, some people will say, is America a Christian nation? Well, If by Christian nation you mean like, is America the new Israel and the people of God in the world today? Well, obviously, no, that is not the case. However, if by Christian nation you mean this, that the governing principles of America originated out of the soil of a basic Christian moral and ethical framework, things like individual human rights because people are made in the image of their creator, that seems obviously true historically, that that the moral kind of soil that gave birth to America is a Judeo-Christian moral framework that was agreed upon and accepted by all the framers of our early documents. And as we look around the world today, we have to admit in our country, throughout much of the Western world, that basic underlying moral framework has evaporated. It's not agreed upon as widely today in American society, clearly as it was at the founding of America. So how is it that you do some sort of cooperative government as Christians with people who now reject self-evidently moral truths? Well, okay, I've got four thoughts. So it took me about 10 minutes to even state the question. Let's see if we can get these four thoughts in in about 10 minutes for you. Here's the first one. I want us to start as Christians with a posture of humility and acknowledge this. One of the main reasons 
that Judeo-Christian morality and Christianity in general has lost ground in American culture is because people who said they believed their Bible acted in wicked and morally reprehensible ways, personally and socially in America. Guys, I hear people all the time mourn the loss of Christian foundation in America. You know, we used to be a country that said we were under God and everyone acknowledged that. Now look where we're going. But we also need to, in humility, acknowledge at the same time when we lifted up that we were a nation under God's provision and prayed for its good at higher percentages in the past, we were also a nation that systematically enslaved people based on race. And then once that was overrun, still in the deep south, the thing people would call the Bible Belt of America, they continued forward in perverse and wicked racism. It's not hard for me to imagine why people wonder why people would want to hold to a Judeo-Christian moral foundation if they say, look at what Christianity produced in the Deep South. I get why non-Christians look at Christians and say, why do you think your moral framework is so good? Look at what happened. So that before we go on the offensive of attacking a morally corrupt world, I just want us to start with humility and say, before we get outraged at a liberal culture that is eroding Christian values, which I see as well, I first want to lament that we as a church, both in present day and in historical realities, did not live up to the very moral code we said we loved. So sometimes you lose your place socially because you were hypocrites, And that has to have been true, at least in some ways, in the American church. I think we need to start with humility. Here's the second thing I would push you to. I'm going to push you on this one. I want you to dig deeper than the assumption that everyone who sees the world in certain moral categories differently from you does not have moral common ground. So, in other words, I know that if you listen to the news, you're going to believe the, that everybody who is more progressive than you is like a radical left that has rejected all morality and wants to run amok in the streets, you know, and that everybody on the right is actually part of this giant conspiratorial right-wing, you know, traditionalism that's re- willing to overthrow the rule of law and give into insurrection to win America back. And here's what I think. I think it's pretty much nonsense that people really fall into only two camps, first off. And secondly, underneath it, I still do think if you dig deep enough, there is still some degree of moral common ground that we share because of the foundations of Judeo-Christian morality that shaped America. Take, for instance, uh, things about policing. We hear loud screaming arguments about defunding the police and how everybody on the lift wants to get rid of law enforcement. And, you know, if you look at it at the stats here, let's simply go to the African-American community. Far fewer than one in five black Americans think that defunding the police is a good idea at all. Do you realize what that means? The vast and overwhelming majority of African-Americans in the communities across the country believe they need good and better policing, not no policing. But yet, if you listen to people screaming culturally right now, you'd assume that was different. Even take Black Lives Matter, the movement. It's far more popular among white 
progressive, wealthy liberals than among the average black African American. But here's my point. I want you to not give up on the idea that there still is common ground, even with people that you don't agree with everything on. There still is a common moral framework written on the heart of every person because Romans 2 says God put it there. It's written on our hearts. Right and wrongs are things that are embedded in us. Let me give you another example. I'm going to read you a text of a political speech that was given on the idea of fatherlessness as a tragedy. Let me just read this. Just a few minutes. This is on the idea of fathers and why they're important. This politician said, of all the rocks we build our lives on, we're reminded today that family is the most important rock. We must recognize and honor how critical every father is to that foundation. They are teachers and coaches, mentors and role models. They are examples of success and men who constantly push us toward it. But if we're honest with ourselves, we'll admit that too many fathers are also missing, missing from too many lives and too many homes. They've abandoned their responsibilities, acting like boys instead of men, and the foundation of our families are weaker because of it. You and I know how true this is in the African-American community particularly. We know that more than half of all black kids live in single-parent households, a number that has doubled, that has doubled since we were children. This was said in 2008. It's still gone up. We know the statistics, that children who grew up without a father are five times more likely to live in poverty and commit crime. They are nine times more likely to drop out of school. They are 20 times more likely to end up in prison. They are more likely to have behavioral problems, to run away from home, or to become teenage parents themselves. And the foundations of our communities are weaker because of it. We need more cops on the streets, yes. We need fewer guns in the hands of people who shouldn't have them. We need more money for schools, more outstanding teachers. We need more job training, all of these things. But we need families to raise children, and we need fathers to realize that their responsibility does not end at the conception of life. We need them to realize that what makes you a man is not the ability to have a child, but the courage to raise one. As a Christian, listening to that, I can affirm every word of that. We might quibble about exactly how much money should go to a teacher, but the moral sentiment of that, the common ground there is what? God's design of fathers for families is good. That's an example of a political speech that I could agree to, and the person who spoke that was Barack Obama. So I'm... I'm listening to my friends on the right who would assume that that speech had to have come from some sort of fire-branded moral conservative. It came from Barack Obama in 2008, spoken at a leading African-American church in the Chicago land. Here's my point. My point is this. I know that there is an erosion of moral common ground in America. It's not completely gone. And if you push past the screaming news headlines to listen to reasonable people on either side of any political aisle, you'll figure out that there are common things we can work on and build on. Okay, third idea. How do you do government when the common ground erodes of how you see the world morally? I think the third thought I have is, as Christians right now, we need to realize that we are no longer the culturally majority power moral model. Here's what I mean. In the past, you could assume that the basic values of Christianity 
were powerful. They had social capital in some way. Christians were dominant in terms of holding office and all those sorts of things. If we look today, here's a simple reality. More and more so, we are not going to be Christianity in power. We're going to be the cultural minority. And frankly, this is more so the way Christianity has existed throughout the millennia. In Roman society in the first century, when the scriptures written and the early church thrived, Christians were certainly not the dominant power in the Roman Empire. They were an oppressed and marginalized religious minority who had to settle in their hearts that they were there to serve Christ and do good and bless, even if the culture was radically opposed to them, even if it was doing far more than putting up harsh blog posts. In the Roman Empire, Christians were burned for their faith. They were cast into gladiatorial arenas, and yet they made a resolution to honor the emperor while they feared Christ. We need models as Christians that aren't just Christians in the positions of power, but Christians who are doing good even when they're the culturally oppressed minority. I think of, for instance, in the Bible, Daniel as a model. Think of Daniel in the Old Testament. He served Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, then he served not just a different political party, but an entirely different regime, an entirely different cultural power. The Babylonians were overthrown, and Daniel then served as a high-ranking official for the Persians who followed. Think about that. Daniel didn't just serve like a Republican president, then he served in a Democratic administration. He's like he served in America, and then he served as a high-ranking official in China. I mean, it's, it's unprecedented. And yet, what, how did he do that? He did that without ever compromising his distinctive values as a follower of Yahweh, the true king. In fact, he was so fervent in his commitment to not compromise on truth that he was willing to be thrown to the lion's den and killed. We are going to have to have a Daniel sort of heart. We may not win the cultural argument always about what is morally good and righteous, but that doesn't mean we don't make it. And, and it means even if we are a cultural minority as Christians, we never lose the heart to do good and to serve people. Take Daniel as a model. Look, Christians, you might actually lose a school board election or a local election that you care about. So what do you do? My answer is the next day you get up and you go volunteer to love the kids in the schools. You have to realize that expressing moral courage isn't simply a statement about politics and governments and what they're responsible to. It's a duty of individual Christians. It's a duty of churches. So whether we're a ruling power or not, that's not going to change whether I should love kids in the schools. That's part of my calling as a follower of Christ. So whatever your cultural model, I think you need to realize this. You can't assume anymore in America that Christians are going to be the dominant moral power. Instead, we have to answer, how will we live as a faithful remnant, even if the times grow more evil? How will we remain committed to the good of our neighbors, even as we live in a place that is more like Babylon? And here's the fourth thought. So, Let's review here. How do we live and do government and politics and life together with people when we don't see the same things morally as right or wrong? How do we lift up righteousness? Well, first, let's be humble. 
Let's be humble about our past as Americans. Christians, when they were in power, didn't always use it for the best things. Second, let's not give in to the radical voices that say everyone is extreme on both sides. Let's believe that actually buried deeply inside of people made in the image of God is some moral common ground that we can still work toward. Third, let's take the model and mindset of Daniel. We may not be a moral power in America going forward in the future, but we can still do good as a faithful presence. But here's the last thought I'll leave you with in answer to that question. How do we live and work and govern together with those we see very, very differently in the world? Well, we realize we're in this situation because something in American culture has been lost. The basic framework of Judeo-Christian values, of people mattering as individuals, having God-given rights, of marriage being lifted up and beautiful, and of moral purity being a virtue. Those things in America are gradually eroding. And that is something where we should lament as well. And we should, as Christians, wherever we're able, advocate for good. Even socially, we should advocate for good and for just laws, for life to be lived according to God's ways, because when righteousness is lifted up, a nation flourishes. And we should lament it because as we live in these days, we're going to see the truth of Romans 1 happen more and more. Romans 1 teaches us that God is evident to all people, but Romans 1 also teaches us that the judgment of God, it's not just coming from heaven as he pours out his wrath on the final day, but the judgment of God is present in the world today as God hands us over to do what our sinful hearts desire. That's what Romans 1 says. Because people did not see worthwhile to acknowledge God, God would hand them over to corruption. We're going to see the judgment of God on display. And as Christians, we're going to have to make choices about what it looks like to live in a way that is very different in our homes and in our families. We're going to have to stand at times and places that are culturally not popular, because the culture around us, though they know God's just sentence, not only does evil, but will applaud and celebrate those who practice it. We won't be able to join in that applause. So as Christians, we will have to learn how to live in a faithful way that is very different from the world around us. So there's some thoughts off of Sunday's message. I really appreciated the comments, the questions, the chance to interact with so many of you. And if you didn't get a chance to listen to it, I'd encourage you not just to listen to this podcast, but pop over to the Cornerstone Church Sermon Podcast and listen to the sermon from Sunday as we sought God's wisdom on what laws and governments are responsible for based out of the book of Proverbs. All of this, I hope is a reflection, just stirs you to love Christ and to live faithfully in whatever places he's called you. And I'm praying that this sort of just reflection and wisdom stirs in all of us that sort of heart to faithfulness. God bless you as you follow him.